The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockio Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're having a great time here, just not a good time. On the line, we have Lou Bazetsky. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Hey, I got the pronunciation correct, did I? Uh, that That is correct. So. I, I know. I read that in your book, that it had been, you guys had pronounced it one way, but some professor corrected, corrected that, you that's guys. That's the way we pronounce it, so it, I think it's acceptable locally, but actually in Poland it's pronounced Bashevsky, so we kind of say our own name wrong in the sense of uh, the Polish pronunciation. I'm almost through the book, haven't quite finished yet. I'm really enjoying it, especially in light of the uh, commemoration coming up next Tuesday and the movie. So we want to kind of unpack a bunch of that stuff. And I I, I think what you've done is really, I'll say this, Tom Brokaw-ish, in that you're really highlighting those who have put their lives on the line for our country back at a time when uh, things were kind of bleak. And your grandfather going through all of the battles that he went through and all of the situations that he went through and, and coming out and being the man who he was uh, is just, just outstanding. So what was, what was the impetus to have you put his stories in writing and to research uh, the book that's entitled uh, A Simple Man's True Story of War, Survival, Life, and Legacy? Well, in... In my 20s, uh, mid to late 20s, I had uh, kind of a strange epiphany. I, I, I was uh, very sick at the time, and it, I, I think I connected with my grandfather. I had always done so, but at, at that point, I, I really, there was a time when I was sick enough that I, I was worried that I wasn't going to be around mm-hmm. for that terribly long. And I thought, you know, if there was some contribution that I could make, uh, in that time, having gone to school for history and having known the vagaries of this story, I thought this is something that I could really work on and also kind of give my focus. And eventually I was doing better, but uh, I, I had spent a lot of time in the hospital at that time. And uh, it was through that connection uh, of uh, with my grandfather that he opened up to me over time and also myself going through uh, historical training he was more eager to talk to me than I think the average person because I had taken the time to do a lot of research and get as much background understanding before I asked him questions. And then eventually when he became comfortable enough and I think just kind of the stars aligned, so to speak, that he had gone through all this and then also had a grandson that had uh, uh, come at an early age to realize this was important, uh, it meshed, and he opened up, and really it kind of broke like a dam that uh, we had no clue, or people in our family, that he had been through as much as he did. But uh, as time went on, realized that he had been through every major land operation in the European theater of operations. Uh, so all five major campaigns of uh, from Normandy into Germany itself. And not to be injured or wounded at all, which is 
very, very unusual, especially for someone who drove a tank. <laughs> the uh, one of the uh, fellows who is is in my film, uh, Stephen Osad, who is a Harvard-educated scholar of history, actually trained under Martin Blumenson, who is considered uh, the best historian in regards to the ETO, and Osad himself in one of our sizzle reels says it's it's really against all calculations of the it, it's beyond all calculations of the odds that he would survive. And I think his exact quote was that that even with the vagaries of where he was on the battlefield, the idea that he went through it without a scratch is is absolutely remarkable. It's really crazy because you have uh, listed down. Yeah, he's, uh, there were 152 members, and only your grandfather and 17 other mem- men survived. And as you said, being involved Correct. in all the battles that he was, that's just unbelievable. You know, I, I like how you interweave the story of your memories of him in the creek and mm-hmm. fishing and doing those kinds of things with who his— his character was and how that impacted him through and after the war. Can you speak about that a little bit more? Uh, I, that's a that's a great question. I appreciate you asking it because most often people just want to focus on the war and the stories about uh, my youth growing up with him, teaching me how to fish and this kind of archaic method of fishing that he taught us that he learned during the Depression. Uh, was a way for me to convey the human that he was, the person that I knew that in spite of all the war and combat that he saw, he still held on to this humanity that he had. And he, he was, there, there's a term that uh, military people uh, put around, uh, and it was actually coined by our uh, former uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, called it a uh, uh, it's a, a it basically an awakening after combat uh, instead of uh, post-traumatic stress. He called it uh, post-traumatic growth, hmm. and Grandpa really exemplified uh, that. Uh, was and, and so it, my point in telling these stories about the background was a way to not just focus on war because that wasn't the totality of the human being that I knew. And that was really important uh, to me to convey because most books, they kind of focus on the war itself and then the war is done, the person's story is done. But these stories and these things that people that have gone through as much combat as he had, any you know, man, or woman, man or woman that serves, those things live with them their whole lives and you never escape it. And I think it was very important for people to understand they had to go on. I thought some of the comments that your grandfather made, uh, and I'm going to quote here, we were somewhat removed from the war in the United States, but Europeans were in the middle of it. Or maybe that's a, a quote that you said. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact that we've not really known a war in this country other than the American Revolution or the uh, war between the states, and other than what people might consider, you know, the attack at Pearl Harbor, although Hawaii was not a, a state at the time, and uh, some may say, you know, the Twin Towers in New York City. But uh, I thought that was interesting, kind of along with this statement, we remember the war, not the impact. We remember the victory, but forget that really everyone lost. I thought that was 
very insightful and uh, and actually there's a lot of wisdom there. And, and that that my grandfather didn't say that verbatim, but those were uh, concepts that he made it a point for us to understand, uh, and and especially myself I haven't worked with him mm-hmm. as long as I did about the story. He he constantly reflected on the impact there in Europe and how how terrible it was for civilians, uh, and and a, a good story that illustrates that was uh, when I was a kid and uh, I was playing uh, war in the yard with my cousins and stuff, and we would constantly uh, do that kind of thing. It's my grandfather said this to both my dad when he was a kid and then myself. But it, it, he said, uh, he pulled aside and said, do you realize what, you know, would happen if war came to your town? And you people have these kind of uh, uh, grandiose, uh, glamorized perspectives of it, you know, with, you know, with the movies and that. But he made it a point for us to understand, so you're going to have to pack up whatever you can carry and get a wheelbarrow or whatever you can because there's not going to be any gas and there's not going to be any means uh, for us to use a vehicle. You're just going to have to take what you can basically carry and run to to get out. And he said that's the way people lived in Europe. And I think not understanding that because, like you said, we haven't had domestic war here in the U.S. uh, since the Civil War. We're very removed from the realities, whereas if you go to Europe... And you understand the history, and you go to these sites, these these uh, monuments to this war. These all of these places are just scattered uh, pillboxes and different uh, implements of war, or monuments to the dead in those very small towns. Every every little town in France has a monument, especially to uh, World War One. Uh, even there, there's some that are, are. It's even scary and ironic that. Some of them are actually shot up from World War II, where there's bullet and mortar shell hits and things and strikes on a World War One monument marking all the dead in the town. Wow. But it's shot up by fighting just 30 years later. Now you had... And, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, was, I was finished. I, I was, I was going to say you, you have firsthand experience about knowing about that because... In writing the book, then what kind of pushed you to do a film? Uh, it it was um, a, a variety of things. I was uh, leaving. I was a teacher for quite quite a long time, and uh, I it was an opportunity I had kind of my last summer, and I had recently gone through a divorce and stuff. I was kind of free of those. It was an opportunity to do this. That probably wasn't going to come again, and so I uh, had a, a former student that had gotten into film that I ran into, and he said he would go along as a cameraman, and uh, we recorded things from village to town, and uh, it just kind of grew uh, from all the things that happened really organically. I didn't know who we would run into. I just knew uh, the basic path, obviously, from uh, the map that my grandfather had given me, and other resources from the third armored division, but it really kind of turned into a whole other thing that, that went beyond the book because it got into the European experience more where 
I thought I had a fairly sound understanding reading, you know, stacks and stacks of books about this and talking to veterans firsthand and reading a lot of memoirs and firsthand accounts. But to, then to actually go there and listen to the people that were affected generationally where they could say, well, my, this happened to my grandfather, this happened to my mother. This it, People don't understand because soldiers and airmen and Marines, they went and served in either the European or Pacific theaters, and then they came home. And then even though there was a lot of hoopla and praise after the war, it was really like, let's get on with it. We don't want to talk about the real dark aspects of what they saw and typically they didn't know they only talked about it to other you know soldiers who had been through combat or marines or airmen uh, or sailors and so the americans had a very skewed sense of uh and i myself going to history i didn't even see a lot of these rare photographs that are in the film in any books or anything like that because what i came to find out was a lot of these things were suppressed by the war department hmm. And you could see for justifiable reasons at the time, but a lot of it was held back because they wanted people to have morale uh, at home and not really know uh, the degree of destruction that was happening, especially in France, Belgium, and the carpet bombings and things that were happening. You know, people didn't really want to know or feel the need that Americans should see how much destruction was going through these places that we were quote-unquote, liberating. And a really good statement to illustrate that was when Sam Lowe, where Grandpa was actually fighting around the outskirts of that, uh, the Panzer Lear division, there was a famous quote from the GI that <laughs> uh, when they bombed, they carpet-bombed it to eradicate Panzer Lear division, and it was, it was basically decimated. It looked like the surface of the moon in France, and a GI quoted and said, uh, boy, we sure liberated the hell out of that you know, I, and even seeing some, uh, I saw some footage of um, the Battle of the Bulge just recently, people walking through where the forest was and the new trees, but still huge craters in the ground. Still, the aftermath is will be felt for you know generations to come to see and, and understand, you know, uh, I, I think, um, you know, some of the things that you did, you know, because I, I, I want to let our, our listeners know uh, that you traveled for more than 700 kilometers following your grandfather's armored division path from Normandy to central Germany with your cameraman. And it was, that's, just, that's just incredible because this film is called Path of the Past. And again, it's going to be shown uh, next Tuesday at Soldiers Memorial Museum at 11 o'clock and also uh, at some other places, which we have previously mentioned, and we will later. But, you know, that's, that's a big leap of faith to go to foreign country, countries, because you were in France and then you were in Germany probably, and to, to do all of that and to have some chance encounters with some people that remember some of the situations and, you know, how encouraging and how kind of frightening a little bit all at the same time. It, it, it was a, a, a remarkable journey, and uh, I, I, it, was, it was definitely, you know, jumping into something. I, I had never been to Europe. I uh, uh, only speak, you know, a few words, you know, tourist French and German, you know, so I, I could order food or, you know, say very basic things. But uh, thankfully, because there were people that uh, 
just kind of volunteered to help, I was able to get translators at multiple occasions that I didn't pay these people or anything. They just volunteered knowing what I was there to do. And they came and uh, helped uh, me on a couple different occasions. Uh, One was a a woman named Karen Green that was uh, from the UK, but actually lived in France as a translator. And through this kind of a roundabout way, we had met in a small town called Saint-Pois in France, where my grandfather fought through. And she brought over, and it's actually in the film, to another friend's house that was from the UK uh, and brought all these shells and helmets and different items that she had unearthed in her garden there oh, wow. uh, that just had been, you know, discarded during the fighting. And <laughs> uh, she had uh, made, a, made it a point to actually drive all the way with me. And later on, when I was in Belgium, to come and meet with us to record an interview with a survivor that survived one of the small towns. So be, but getting to the Battle of the Bulge itself, this woman was actually in a, a very small town called uh, Pafondry, and the first SS had pushed their way through in, in the days before, uh, headed by uh, Colonel Yoken Piper, uh, which was actually the, the strongest force in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, up in the north, and a lot of it didn't ever get any kind of press, but th- that was where the Miami Massacre occurred. It was also a massacre. Some estimates go up into you know hundreds of civilians in a neighboring town of Stevelo, mm. and then they also wiped out a bunch of men, women, and children uh, in the town of Parfondry. Well, this, this young <laughs> woman at the time, she was a very young girl. She was only three years old, and the only reason that uh, she survived was she was low to the ground, shot her family around her uh, and neighbors. uh, They missed her and she ran to a nearby farm and hid. And she told her side of the story. And I explained how grandpa's outfit, D company of the third armored, third third regiment pushed into town and saw this aftermath. And, of all the reports and some of the memoirs, it was one of the few times that uh, men openly said they broke down and cried when they saw, you know, mm. children and old old men and women mm. in the streets. They said it was just uh, too much. They it, they had seen their friends die and they had seen so much combat, but to actually see families uh, killed, it was a, a, a breaking point for a lot of these men in the initial parts of the bulge. And then the nights that happened past that, a uh, they became surrounded. They actually lost all their infantry support, and that Sherman tank was had very poor visibility. That's why a lot of their tank commanders were killed because they had to actually stick their head out to really adequately acquire targets and uh, see what was going on the battlefield. But in the night, they thought with all their infantry uh, recruits not there to, uh, or the squadron there to help them or tell them if infantry's coming, they would probably be, you know, uh, put satchel charges on their tanks and kill them in, in the night. Well, in the night, they strung a perimeter of grenades around the tank, and just and it's on Christmas Eve, there was 18 inches of snow on the ground. Oh, my. They were freezing in there. Uh, one of the other guys named Les Underwood said, if you want to know what it was like in that tank, he said, just wait till it's below zero outside and climb in a 50-gallon barrel and just hang out in there. He said, you know, get an idea, because Sherman 
it didn't have uh, any kind of heater. And so the only way that they could heat their hands up or anything was on transmission inside. There, it, it, there was really nothing, no way for them to warm up. And <clears throat> in the night, that same night on Christmas Eve, those grenades started going off that perimeter they had set. And thankfully, though, to them, it was actually a herd of cows that, that hit the grenades. And so they all started celebrating. You know, they had for a second thought, here they come, here's the first SS, Hitler's own division, actually. But it was cows. And when I relayed that story to the translator uh, there in that small town of Parfondry, that woman who at the time then was 74, she started to cry. And the translator explained, she said, she heard those cows. She oh. heard those cows uh, blowing up in the in the wow. night on Christmas Eve in 1944. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, you relate to and, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, I was just going to say that in the odds that I would find this woman, it was a very small town. There were only a few people that actually survived that attack. So the odds that 71 years later I would meet her and then have this interaction that corroborated this story that my grandfather told me years ago it was just absolutely miraculous well and and it shows you how small the world really is and the impact of events that uh war can have on people's psyches and what they remember and what they don't remember and you know i know you you made a point and i think it's very typical of those who have been in battle they don't talk about it because it's not something you want to talk about it's you see things that no one should have to see uh, you experience things right. no one should ever have to experience. And so you want to bury those things. And really the only people that do understand are those who have experienced that with you. And you, you, you bring that up with one of your, your grandfather's uh, tank mates, which I thought was a, a great story, uh, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. that they hadn't seen each other for, what, 65 years? Correct. And then you were able to kind of get them together. Talk about that and what that reunion was like. Uh, that was that was absolutely uh, phenomenal. And uh, just just to share with you something I had written down though about your previous statement about not talking about it, and I get back. But there's a very good quote by a fellow named Vernon Baker, who was a World War II African American, uh, uh, who actually received the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. And his statement was that war is the most regrettable proving ground. Those who rush to launch it and those who seek to create heroes from it should remember its legacy. Mm. You have to be there to appreciate its honors and die to forget them. Mm. And and that, <laughs> that really illustrates a relationship that they had, the reason why they hadn't talked to each other for 65 years was they both wanted to put the war behind them, even though they had been so close. And strangely enough, Les had moved just one town over from the town that he had grown up, and he had a fairly unique name, Leslie uh, Underwood. And so uh, I was able to find him really just uh, online and uh, looked up. There were only a couple people with that name and ended up getting a hold of him, and immediately he knew who I was, because my name's Lube Zesky as well, and he recognized the name, and we we had a, a fantastic conversation the first time. We talked for about 30 minutes, and I later talked to his daughter, and his daughter said, uh, 
my dad hasn't ever talked to anybody for 30 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, they were in you know, old school, very stoic, uh, humble guys. It just didn't talk about those things, but he was so excited to know that my grandfather was well. And that, so they set up a visit, his daughter and his wife, and they drove all the way from Pennsylvania. And it was, uh, it, it was really a lifetime experience to see them talk. And I was able to interview both of them at the same time, but we had a real family meeting and we still talk to their family. And it, it was immediately we were, uh, family. It was it was a really amazing experience. We're going to take a, a, a brief break here. Uh, we've got to do some public service announcements at the top and the bottom of the hour. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of Intune. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been talking to Lou Bazetsky, who is the author of Looch, A Simple Man's True Story of War, Survival, Life, and Legacy, and also the executive producer. Is that correct, Lou? Uh, Correct. Uh, Producer and director. Producer and director of Path of the Past, which will be shown at 11 a.m. Tuesday, this Tuesday, at Soldiers Memorial Museum to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. And that film is also available on Amazon Fire, Roku, some devices. It's also available on Vimeo and has received uh, quite a few awards. Congratulations to you. Oh, thank you. So uh, it, 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 those, those awards also, it, I had a lot of help uh, from some different editors, uh, specific, uh, especially uh, 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 John, uh, 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 <laughs> I'm tongue-tied, uh, John Knowles, and then also uh, uh, Connor Johnson. I was mixing up their two names, but they both helped me in the final production phase of getting all the sound right, uh, getting the editing done. And so I, I can't take credit for the whole thing, but sure, there were a lot of other people involved in a lot of other capacities, too. Very, very good. We're, we look forward to seeing that. Now, we, we stopped prior to the break, uh, Lou. We were talking about the um, reunion that had t- taken place and with Mr. Underwood and your grandfather, and they hadn't seen each other for 65 years, and I guess they were able to get together. Was that in uh, Pocahontas? It was in uh, Collinsville. My great- and uh, one, one thing before I continue there was that there is also a showing in uh, January that's going to be at uh, Big Daddy's in Soulard. We're going to have a, a special screening. And that will also go to all the proceeds from that will go to Heroes Care, which is a St. Louis-based entity that raises money for families dealing with deployment. Correct. And they also get a percentage of the film, of, you know, it, <laughs> of proceeds. Uh, but uh, just wanted to bring that up. But the the uh, the visit came to Collins, where my grandfather had moved from Pocahontas after the war, and pretty much. He stayed there until he passed in uh, uh, 2013. But it was in uh, the summer of 2011, Les and his wife and daughter uh, came all the way from Philadelphia, like I said, and uh, it was was a a miraculous uh, interaction, and we had more interviews, and a lot of things came out in those conversations later that they were willing to allow me to uh, tape 
And so some of that dialogue is actually in the film, along with uh, many of the tapes of my grandfather's conversations. And had I known <laughs> that uh, he had been through so much, or had I known this would become a film, I would have, you know, maybe put this on, you know, had uh, different sound equipment at the time. But I was young, and I just used a, you know, little tape recorder. Uh, but thanks to Connor Johnson and some other people on our staff, we were able to clean those tapes up as much as possible to include them in the film. So he was actually both Les Underwood and my grandfather actually commentate throughout during some of the stock footage. Very interesting. So the, the film, it focuses on the cost uh, and the European destruction of the war, along with some of the horrors and sacrifices made by those who served their country. Are there any kind of what I would call uh, anecdotal kinds of things, comments made by your grandfather along the way, kind of like we talked about at the, at the first part from, from when he was, you know, how war impacted him and uh, just his, uh, his character coming out in uh, discussing war or interactions with people or some of the, the horrors that he saw. Uh, c- certainly. He, he was very adamant about uh, letting people know and being very specific uh, about how scared they really were and about how tired they really were. And then he, he, he wasn't uh, a fan of most of the films that have uh, depicted World War II, especially the Battle of the Bulge movie, which, if you're familiar, it's in the mid to late 60s. I can't remember when it came out, but it didn't even have snow on the ground and there were uh, actual like 60 Vietnam era American tanks that were used and kind of painted with German uh, <laughs> markings on them, things like that, that uh, really bothered him. But he, he definitely um, wanted people to understand through this story that there was nothing glamorous about what they had to do and see. And that uh, it's really, and it, it's almost an insult to people that serve to, to have any glamorization associated with it because it is, it, 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 I think it allows people to be more removed from the realities. And that, I think that's, that plays in just my personal opinion, plays into why people feel so distanced uh, when they do come home from combat is that people are just in a whole different realm. They don't have any uh, inkling of what war is really like. And there were different uh, people that have been involved in this project, like uh, Todd DiPestino, who's actually the author of a really great book about Bill Malden. And he's in the film, and he's a, uh, a historian from Penn State. And he said he really appreciated the book for its unflinching candor, and that too often... The World War II stories, because of the greatest generation part, because we want to focus on the heroes that these people are, which is, I think, uh, totally necessary, appropriate. But then it sometimes pulls punches on the graphic nature of what these people had to do. And especially Grandpa was adamant about how outgunned he felt and how he felt that uh, really, the U.S. Army equipped he and his other people in the 3rd Armored Division with a substandard tank. In his own words, he said, our tanks just didn't even compare. And there were, there's been a lot of, I think, a, 
apologist theories about this. There's many books to claim that it was adequate uh, tanks. And uh, I'm not uh, going to name names of some of these people that are, are, are very supportive, but in some cases, but really they say that in a vacuum of the removal of the idea that we had complete air superiority and the Soviets had depleted the America, uh, the German tank corps to a degree that allowed us to be successful. But the Battle of the Bulge really illustrates how bad it was because in singular engagements, uh, especially my grandfather's, for example, they went up against a variety of anti-tank guns and three Panther tanks in one town. And by the end of that engagement, every tank was destroyed except my grandfather's, although it was hit and made uh, <laughs> it was functional to at least move. It still wasn't combat ready, and he had to actually pull back from the line. But he, that was in one day when we didn't have they didn't have air support uh, because of how cloudy and snowy it was during the bulge. You know, it's interesting that you say that story because I was gonna I was gonna bring that up. I have that that circled in my notes here that by the end of the fighting on January 15, nineteen forty five, only your grandfather's tank remained. And Les Underwood, who had that reunion with him, his tank was hit, killing his driver and assistant driver instantly. The turret crew bailed out. Les was forced to dive into the snow and play dead as the German infantry overran their position. Now get this. As Les lay motionless, a mortar shell exploded nearby, setting his jacket on fire. Moments later, a German soldier kicked him hard in the ribs to see if he was still alive. The soldier then lifted the motionless Underwood and said kaput, and threw him back in the snow. It was the longest day of his life, he recalled, as he lay freezing in deep snow, afraid to move his bullets ricocheted around him. At nightfall, he crawled back to the U.S. lines, past two German sentries to rejoin what was left of D Company. God. You know, unbelievable. Oh, my. Unbelievable. Right. You, you know, I read in the book that, you know, they, they couldn't <clears throat> cross five at a time because of the... Um, hedgerows, and so they had to go single file down the roads, and the lead tank was always the one that got hit and blown up and destroyed, and and then then they rotated going to to be the lead tank. You know, I can't imagine like, oh, gee, it's our turn, Yeah, you know, and and the the conflict with some of the uh, officers who were not really there. Uh, you know, some of the officers were were always with the troops, and some of the officers weren't. Uh, this this is my short of the, of the deal, and they were saying, "Go on, go on." It's like we're not going on. You know what's going to happen if we're going on? We're going to get blown up, and and the conflict of orders, and how some people think, you know, by golly, because I've got you know gold leaf on my hat or whatever, that you need to do what I say, and they may not have known what they were saying. Correct. And, it, and there, although there were uh, some fantastic officers, one of which my grandfather had, I mean, just absolute adoration for, was a, a fellow uh, by the name of Captain Stallings, who, who always, having been through it, knew not to push them into a situation where they were just invariably going to get killed. But because people didn't understand, and a lot of officers, even in the 3rd Armored Division, didn't understand how inadequate those tanks were for direct tank-on-tank warfare. And the strategy at the time uh, was that you weren't supposed to engage other tanks but actually go around them. And that sounds great, but they're not going to allow you 
you know, to get behind, behind their lines or, you know, get around their tanks unless they absolutely had to. And it was uh, air support and a lot of things that, that helped them achieve their missions. But, yes, there were, there were quite a few different officers that uh, my grandfather and Les Underwood didn't have much of any respect for because they, they hadn't spent enough time up front to understand how difficult the strategy they had to employ was and how uh, inadequate because they think, okay, it's a tank. It, it must, you know, have this ability to endure, but they, it, it could push through and, and fight its way through. But the problem was either their 76 or their 88 millimeter guns. There were times where grandpa said he saw a anti-tank 76 or an 88 go through one side of a Sherman and come out the other. Yeah, that's incredible. On numerous occasions. And so to see that day to day, I just don't know how they got back into those tanks. It did. There, there were cases where they said there were people that broke down just at the idea of getting back in, having seen what they had seen. So I can't take it anymore. Uh, there was uh, uh, some that even essentially committed suicide to avoid getting back in the tank, knowing full well that most likely you were going to get obliterated or burned. And that was your fate. And uh, the the 3rd Armored Division was the uh, worst armored division in the sense of, uh, not to say it was the worst division, but meaning that it had the worst ratio of losses of tanks and men. And that was because most often they ran into very heavily armed uh, SS divisions. They fought, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the, the total amount, but uh, it, both in in Normandy, uh, in Belgium, and in Germany, they, they fought uh, division after division of uh, panzer groups that had heavy tanks, sometimes Tigers, mostly Panthers, or they had anti-tank guns that were just uh, exceptional at taking out Shermans and easily. So the, even in the movies, like the recent you know, movie in 2014 depicts uh, three tanks taking on a Tiger. They would have never taken on a Tiger unless they absolutely had to with three tanks. It would really it, it necessitated five or more to one. And if uh, a depth tank commander or that platoon commander would have more likely, from my opinion, based on all this research and talking to these tankers, that they would have backed off and tried to call for air support if it had the possibility. They wouldn't have directly engaged the tiger. Which makes the, the fact that your grandfather survived without any injuries or wounds unbelievable. <laughs> it, it is, and that was to him, that was the most amazing thing. Uh, because I, I asked uh, uh, both Les and my grandfather, I said, well, you know, I, you've told me obviously about the worst things, which the worst things were, especially the Battle of the Bulge for them and all the losses. But I said, what was maybe the best thing or most amazing thing uh, in your mind about the war? And for Grandpa, it was just the sheer fact that he survived, having been from that original cohort. And uh, for uh, Les Underwood, the best thing, he said, uh, was when they handed him his discharge papers. Hmm. So he was, uh, (laughs) uh, they were, uh, they did their jobs, but they were very much glad to be done. You know, uh, Lou, what, I want to try to close the interview down here and 
uh, give your grandfather some kudos, but uh, what what are some favorite memories that you have of him? I know you mentioned the, the fishing and the creek, and we've talked about that a little bit, and, and it may be um, you know, amplifying that a little bit, but what, what are some of the, your favorite memories of your grandfather that our folks uh, who are listening can, can really uh, appreciate? Um, I would say... Um in, in general, I was, uh, my grandfather was the kind of fellow that could like light up a room. He was just had an aura about him. Perhaps it was because of how much that he had been through, uh, and survived, but he, he really, uh, was just a remarkably kind and uh, good human being. Everybody that knew him, all the people at his church and, uh, everything he was active, he was really active in. Uh, just all these different organizations and uh, KC Hall and Polish American vets and things. They always remarked about that, but in, and that came through a lot in the fishing and probably the, the one of the most amazing moments uh, and really what kind of got me going on the story. One of the reasons was when I was a kid, uh, I was probably about 12 or 13 or something at the time. And we were uh, fishing near his house just to catch some bait fish to actually go catch catfish with later and we went through this concrete culvert that was just down the road from his house and grandpa kind of stopped and was looking at something on the side there was enough light that you could see what it was he was staring and i walked up close and it was a huge swastika painted across this culvert that some high school kid or something presumably had painted down there and he just stared at it for it seemed like a very long time. And he said, you know, I bet that kid that painted that didn't have, you know, he used a few choice words that I wouldn't say on a radio, but he doesn't have any idea what that means. And the way that he looked at that and the way that he just stood there, I always wondered, like, why did he, you know, ponder that so greatly at that time? I mean, he stood there for what seemed many minutes and, uh, you know, he was in a different place, but having read the book, gone through the whole experience, like now at least I have an inkling of what he was thinking at the time, but I still, you know, obviously never will have a full understanding of it. Uh, you know, it's, and I don't think anybody could, uh, but, uh, I, I, I think it's remarkable that it just worked out that he was both willing to tell a story and I was willing at a younger age to, uh, get it down, and that's very uncommon. It is. It uh, is very uncommon. And I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your grandfather with the world and giving us insights into his character and insights into the things that he went through during the war. Uh, the book is entitled Luch, A Simple Man's True Story of War, Survival, Life, and Legacy. And the movie by writer and director Lou Bozetsky, who we're talking to right now. It's called Path of the Past, and you can see that this Tuesday at the Soldiers Memorial Museum at 11 a.m. Also, it is going to be shown at Big Daddy's in Soulard on Thursday, January 16th at 7 p.m. with proceeds benefiting Heroes Care. Also, proceeds from the movie Do Benefits Heroes Care. It is also available on Amazon Fire, Roku, Vimeo. The Facebook page is just look up Path of the Past, and you will find some information on that. 
Lou Bozetsky, thank you very much for being on In Tune today. I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate what you've done in uh, letting future generations know about your grandfather and about his experiences. I think it's something that's valuable, and I think it is something rare, and I think you're to be commended for that. Thank you very much, sir, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, include it.